1: He nā e tēnei nā te reo irirangi o
2: what I find is quite interesting in, uh, uh, in my teaching experience is that it's actually the students who are more receptive, whereas it's actually the studio owners and other teachers that actually uh, push back more than the students. Uh, What it comes down to when uh, when we talk about, I guess, culture, Indian culture in yoga, is that there's just lack of awareness.
1: As yoga has grown in popularity, many have noticed a growing separation from its traditional Indian roots. The commodification of the ancient practice has coincided with a lack of inclusivity in what's become a multi-million dollar industry. Now, this is obviously a vast topic, so we're going to split this conversation up into two episodes. But yep, even that probably won't suffice. As a certified yoga teacher myself, I thought I should speak to other teachers and practitioners in the context of what we see here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So, welcome to Voices. I'm Kadambri Kumar.
2: In New Zealand... I guess the way that I have been taught, the way that I'm used to, and the way that I want to continue teaching from what I've learned um, isn't really well accepted because there's this view that yoga, I guess, is only spiritual when people want it to be spiritual for them, and it's not quite regularly a spiritual practice.
1: That's Reha Kumar, Fiji Indian, grew up in Fiji, speaks Hindi and has been practicing yoga since she was a young girl. She's a trained teacher and started teaching in 2021. Her approach has been, well, let's just say more traditional with a wider focus than just exercise.
2: There was all this pushback from when I would discuss history or philosophy or any themes in my classes, I'd be told to just focus on the poses. You know, and not me teaching that, which I was quite offended by because, because that's the whole part of teaching,
1: right? Ray has been active in the media talking of things like appropriation of iconography and how the industry tends to capitalize on tradition under the guise that it quote unquote belongs to everyone, rather than acknowledging the roots of it, let alone building relationships with people of the community. And of course, there's the bandying around of words like namaste, often out of context, or the mispronunciation of asanas. Lots of parodies online about that.
2: I think in any profession, once you get a job and you have all these um, checklists, you need to be able to, I guess, perform in that, to be able to be good at that job. And I think learning how to say the words and the names of the poses correctly should be a part off your checklist as a teacher. And I think that it's not hard to actually learn how to pronounce words properly. Uh, And I think that if you are committed to it, this should be something that you should at least try to do. Look, if you have perfected a pose perfectly and you've tried day in and day out in your uh, uh, parking lot or garage to actually show that on social media, it looks great and you can do it. You can do that for words. You can 100% do that forward, and you should be able to.
1: I came to New Zealand in 2006 and I can say that my Kiwi teachers in Auckland were trained in India. They had a strong relationship with their gurus and the community back there and authentically tried to weave in spiritual and cultural aspects of the practice into their classes here. But recently, probably like many other South Asians here, there have been plenty of times where attending some yoga classes has made me uncomfortable. Cringy even sometimes. Melanie Sharma Barrows is a diversity consultant and lawyer who moved here from the U.K. a few years ago. She's been practicing yoga for a while now and making her own observations.
3: The first thing I see as a practitioner is that where demographically, where I was taking yoga and in, involving myself in yoga, there was a culture around exercise and aesthetics. But at the same time, as an Indian, who um, my first language is Hindi. My my mother spoke to me first in Hindi. That's my first language, no matter how British I sound. I'm hearing all these, I'm hearing words that I recognize as a Hindi speaker, yet a culture that is about aesthetics. Um, And then secondarily, as a former finance lawyer, I'm seeing the business overlay of yoga as we see it in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And then I look at what's happening in the United Kingdom and America as regards the movement of yoga. And I see that there's a lot more awareness and there's a lot more discussion and there's a lot more debate and there's a lot more comfortable conflict around talking about the commercialization of this practice. Uh, And I don't see that debate moving in the same direction here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, as I do overseas. But even
1: beyond the use of icons or mispronounced names or random music playing in the background, we're now talking about inclusivity of the teaching industry and classes, which in both Reha and Melanie's experience doesn't really exist.
3: In New Zealand... The problem lies here for me when there is a certain ethnicity or ethnicities of women being gatekept. So as a 44-year-old woman, I've actually never been to a yoga class where I have been taught by an Indian or somebody of Indian descent or somebody who has a strong awareness of the culture of yoga beyond asana. They are um, promoting the aesthetic of yoga as opposed to the grounding and the principles that you both as qualified teachers know underpin this exercise. Um, so my answer is I just see it going on a different path here.
1: Both women want us to stop ignoring the elephant in the room, to have more open discussions, more comfortable conflict, as Melanie called it, about the commodification of yoga. But what happened after Reha was quoted in a Herald article last year and stuff this year was interesting.
2: I was initially met with lots and lots of positive feedback and this all came from students. Uh, firstly when it came to this herald article lots of people um, congratulating me on speaking up about it um, and lots of students or students to be uh, that actually shared their experience um, of how isolating it is and also this isn't just south asians this isn't just brown people you know like they're minorities people that are Uh, Big people that identify differently, uh, people that are white, you know, that have gone to studios and they find that, hey, actually, we have come here for this cultural spiritual practice. Why are they not giving it to us? Um, Lots of people feel left out. Whereas the complete opposite, yes, that's happened too. Um, lots of people that just give me the cold shoulder. Um, so I lose out on opportunities. Um, I get told that all oh, classes will start back again for this class, you know, many months later. And then we'll come back to you and let you know how it's going.
1: In other words, it's a challenge. U.S.-born Megan Setti has had a long relationship with yoga as a teacher and a student. She's been reflecting for a while on this homogenization and reduction of the practice and the separation from its cultural roots, commodifying it. You don't exactly see Maori healing practices or certain more physical practices like say Brazilian or Angolan capoeira being separated from their cultural roots, so why yoga?
4: Gosh, you could you could write a dissertation on the answer to that question. So I guess there's lots of to- issues, I, I suppose, or perspectives that are contributing to that. I think fundamentally one of the primary issues in sort of Western, it's not the right word, but um, in countries outside of India who, where there is a history of colonization, the type of yoga that we are predominantly seeing and practicing is, is a very colonized version and for me, and guess in my experiences, I've lived in the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand. So the predominant amount of yoga I've experienced in those environments has definitely been Western yoga that's been influenced by a, a history of colonization and change, which goes, I mean, you can go back a long ways in terms of how yoga even um, first was brought out of India and whether that even represents what the holistic um, system and philosophy that yoga is. So I think the second piece is about, regardless of what's being offered, it's it's clearly not being offered in ways that are inclusive or safe in general, in in any terms of diversity. And I think that's something that the yoga community is more comfortable with exploring because it's a little more simplistic, and people can think about making individual changes. I think. Thinking about the bigger issue of what is it that we are doing that we are calling yoga and is that really representative of the bigger picture of what yoga is, I don't think that is, that is not an easy conversation or thing to explore and requires quite a lot of in-depth thinking.
1: Like I said at the top of the podcast, it's complex and nuanced and being brutally honest with oneself about the what's, how's and why's of teaching yoga isn't exactly easy. And that reflection also happens to be a big part of your teacher training as you go through it.
4: Uh, it's really hard. Um, So I stopped teaching in 2021, I think, which was a, a combination of wanting to have more time for myself. And then also I was kind of exploring these issues around racism and colonization and personally felt like I couldn't reconcile what I was beginning to discover with what I was teaching so the first thing for me was stepping back from teaching from that I wanted I kind of wanted to make time to really focus on my own practice and my own practice open that up a little bit bigger than just physical practice and then the other piece was self study in terms of reflecting and exploring some of these issues
1: We'll hear from Megan again in the next episode. Make sure you don't miss it by following the podcast. Back to Melanie now.
3: The problem is systemic. And, you know, one of the things that pricked my ears up around Reha's experience was it did not surprise me that she was openly, uh, she was realizing, hang on a second, I'm not getting a regular slot. Uh, hang on a second. I'm not getting a popular slot. and um, Kind of saying, well, hang on a second. If we can show that authenticity to the person with the French background and the French cuisine, luckily, qu- luckily, chefing has come a long way. I don't want to go into that sector. The restaurant sector has come a long way. Why can't we give these young women of Reha's background the same credibility? Whereby somebody who's saying, actually, you know, I've got this um, inbuilt childhood experience of yoga that I'd like to share or I'd like to go down I'd like to go down a road in my classes where I can teach people spiritually about the asana you know and what's what's happening with her she's being told oh just you know keep a lid on it and if it's happened as i say to all the people i work with who are mostly women of color of all um diverse of all ethnicities in new zealand i always say to them if it's happening to you it's happening to everyone else but of your of your demographic they just don't really know how to say something about it or maybe they just don't have the ability to say something about it because they have to work within parameters in order to get a job. And then this goes back to, because you've asked me a question about organizational structure, this comes back to the commodification of the practice. How does it make money? How how do we make money? How do we look at bottom lines? As a former finance lawyer, I get it. I know you have to make money, but you have to be sustainable. You have to make money sustainably, I think. Um, and sustainability comes with culture.
1: Big thanks to Melanie Sharma-Barrows, Reha Kumar and Megan Seti for sharing their thoughts on this topic of the industry of yoga. We'll be continuing the chat next week, so stay tuned. My name is Kadamri Kumar. And yeah, namaste. Just kidding. Thanks for listening.